Hello and welcome to the Welsh Rugby Podcast. Just a massive thank you to whoever you are listening to this. Before we start, just to remind you that we do this podcast two, three times a week. But we don't always know which days it's going to be on, so there's only one way to know, and that is to subscribe and get notifications. Why not drop us a review while you're there? Right, enough about that. Let's talk some rugby. Hello, I'm Ben James. Now, for anyone who has been following Welsh rugby in the last few weeks and months, they'll know that Valley's rugby in particular has been affected by the recent bad weather. Obviously, Storm Dennis and Kiara have uh, affected a lot of clubs uh, in Welsh rugby, South Wales in particular, uh, at grassroots level. And uh, we want to do something about it. So uh, last Friday night, we hopped into a minivan and and went up uh, north above the M4, up on the A470 to Kilvanith Rugby Club where we did a, a special Welsh rugby podcast live with Nigel Owens and James Hook. So this is uh, really sort of a podcast chronicling that night. Uh, it was a great night. Um, uh, we raised a lot of money. I think the, the total, as far as I know, is about £1,400, all going to the WRU's uh, Flood Relief Fund, which will help those clubs at grassroots level uh, recover. So here's a little breakdown on how this podcast is going to go, much like the night itself. I spent the first couple of hours uh, speaking to a few locals. Um, in fact, the first voice you'll probably hear on this podcast is that of uh, Kilvanith chairman Dudley Lloyd talking about uh, Nigel Owens being invited back to the club. He had spoke there before and he was uh, he was allowed back, incredibly. And I spoke to a few other people there. Um, Simon then spoke to Nigel on stage uh, and in conversation with Nigel Owens. Then Mass Southcombe did the same with James Hook. Then there was a quiz. Uh, as ever, hosted by Simon Thomas. Particularly tough uh, picture round. And then it was time for the big Q&A with myself, Nigel, James and Simon, which you'll be able to listen to pretty much in its entirety in this podcast. But before all that, let's kick the podcast off with Kilvanith chairman Dudley Lloyd talking about a certain Nigel Owens. When I welcomed him down with the door, I said, I'm surprised you're back in here because we did say you couldn't come here anymore, and that was it. Why was he barred then? Well, he's... Because he... Because he what he is. <laughs> a referee. <laughs> uh, you'll never change that. <laughs> no, no, no. Obviously, proceeds tonight are going towards uh, the flood, the flood and all that. Um, I suppose that's, that's something that's hit Valleys rugby massively, hasn't it? Um, we've been lucky, right? Our field is down there. Not, it's a good field. We haven't had that problem. But I do feel sorry for a lot of the clubs, not just for the field, but they don't understand that running a club now is a business. And the flooding of the premises is going to affect their ability to survive as a club. Because unless things like this help them, they're going to have a problem. But I suppose it also, when these things happen, that's when you sort of see Welsh club rugby sort of come together. You know, we've seen a lot of clubs come together, haven't we, in this time? Yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, I think I was reading in the paper today about a gang had gone down to a certain club. There were too many arrived at one, so they went went up to Cross Keys and helped out there. So, I mean... Uh, yeah, the camaraderie is superb in, in all the clubs. Final question. Will um, Nigel's been here twice now. Will he come back a third time? Of course he will. <laughs> it's great to be here, sat with Nigel. And uh, have you a survey of the crowd? Any yellow or red cards going to be required tonight? No, I, I was here about um, well, three years ago, I think it was, um, speaking in the end-of-season dinner, I think it was, Dudley, wasn't it? Um, yeah. nice, nice, nice to see you again. Uh, you haven't changed anything. You're still taking all night to thank everybody here. <laughs> Me. And um, 
but fair play, I, you know, a bit early coming and I got out of the car and, and Dudley comes out and says, Nigel, welcome to Kilvanith Rugby Club again. And I noticed that he was limping a bit. I said, you're right, Dudley, you're limping a bit there. And he said, yes, I, I think I've got a stone in my shoe. I said, yes, I think it's 24 on the other one. <laughs> You've been living a good life, Dudley, I can see. We've... Um <laughs> Nigel, between the two of us, we've seen quite a few things in Welsh rugby over the years, but I don't think we've probably ever seen a week like this. It's been quite extraordinary, mm-hmm. so it, it makes me wonder where to start. So I thought we'd start with a nice, easy one. Uh, Joe Marler. Um, <laughs> um, yes, it, uh, what, what's he like to referee, <laughs> Nigel? Yeah, look, I've, I've always got on very well with him. Um, He's, you know, every time I go into the English changing rooms before a game, you do the usual stuff, the front row chart and check the boots and stuff. He, he always comes up and says, um, Boreda. No matter what time of the day it is, it's Boreda. <laughs> and I keep telling him, look, it's, it's Prounda now or it's no star. And then the last time I did them against France, it was it was Prounda, it was afternoon. And he came up and said Prounda. So I've always found him well. But he, I think he's a bit of that joker on, on the field. And I think sometimes uh, there's a line you don't cross, you know. You've got to keep things respectful on the field. And... Uh, like probably Hooky can sit, talk a bit better with him. You think things like that go on in in training and stuff. You know the the banter and the players mess about and stuff like that in training. But I, I think there's a time and place for it. And and I think in a Six Nations match like that, um, you know, was not the appropriate thing to do. And um, when when you have people saying you know it's sexual assault and stuff like that, I think no, come on, let's have a bit of reality here and don't be disrespectful to people who have experienced that horrific yeah. side of things. Mostly. You know, just take this in the context it was. You know, it it wasn't needed. He went too far with it, and and it's been dealt with appropriately, I, I think. And I know some people are saying, well, he's had only ten weeks. A, a players had three weeks for a punch. Well, what they also do, not, not the rights and wrongs of it. What they also do is. They'll take into account your previous history. You know, if you haven't been sent off before, then they will reduce it. If you show remorse and apologise, if you have a history of being sent off a few times, then mm. then that's going to show in in the ban you're going to have. So look, they, they've dealt with it. It needed to be dealt with. Um, there's nothing more in it than a bit of rugby banter, but it was not the right place to do it. I think. I mean, it's one of a series of incidents that have been talked about this week. There's been a load during the Six Nations. I mean, we're all kind of amateur referees in the media and on social media as well. Is it that much harder refereeing now? Because it seems the scrutiny is incredible upon every single decision replayed 20, 30 times. Is it tougher now? It's tougher in one sense and easier in another sense because you've got technology to make some of the decisions which are big decisions to make in the game. You know, you go back 10, 15, 20 years ago, you were making them on your own or just even your two assistant referees without seeing the incident the yeah. second time. So you've got technology now, and technology is, is an important part of the game because sometimes it's humanly impossible not to make a decision without technology. And um, so it has its place in the game. I do think it's being overused. Mm. Um, but, you know, I think... Because it's being overused sometimes, it then brings more pressures on on referees. So I do think that the game is easier to referee in one sense now. But what is more difficult is the pressure on you because you have, you know, things replayed on on the screen in in the stadium. Um, And you know yourself as a referee now, you you made a mistake. You know, I've seen referees referee a game. They've seen they made a mistake and then they try to put it right. And then once you do that, you're finished. You know, because the players... 
will lose respect for you then. So uh, there's more pressure on you because you're in the public light. Every game you, you referee is live on, on telly as well. So there's more pressure on you in one sense, but the game is also easier to referee in, in another sense. But certainly technology has added pressure and on social media, everybody has an opinion as, yeah. and has a view as well. But um, sometimes you've got to take it in context where it's coming from, from some of the some of the idiots that are out there sometimes. Yeah, well, that's the international game. We're here at um, Clavani, the rugby club. And the reason we're here um, is really to raise funds for the clubs that are affected by the flooding, a lot in this area in particular. I mean, I was just wondering, in terms of your background, you started out probably refereeing at the community club. Clubs. You go around a lot of them speaking. Um, what, what? How do you see the importance of the community clubs now, and how much are they still a, a key part of Welsh rugby? Well, to me, they're the most important part of, of Welsh rugby. Now, it does go hand in hand. You, you know, you, you need the international players and, and people like Hookie uh, to have the kids to inspire them to play. But if you haven't got the community game, those kids have got nowhere to play. So yeah. it goes hand in hand. But, but to me, the most important part of the game is is the community game. The community game needs a successful international side or you know professional side with big players, big names to attract people to play the game. Um, but there's no way the international um, game can survive without a community no. game. So to me, the community game is the most important part of, of the game and it's hugely important, I think, that we that we support. That, that's where I started, that's where Hookie started, that pretty much anybody who has reached any level in international rugby will have started at the community end of the game and it's vitally important that we look after because if the community game dies then the whole game will will die and to me that's why it's important you know that nice like this that you support the community club yes, Now, I did my research before starting this. Um, I looked it up. You're very That's first. the first time, Simon. First time, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, your first international match was Portugal against Georgia, 2003-04 season. Your first test match, Japan-Ireland, I think in Osaka in Japan. Mm. Um, yep. 98 test matches now, world record, including the World Cup final 2015. Fantastic achievement. Yeah. <laughs> So I think the question is, is it 98 not out, or have we seen you on the international stage for the last time? Any exclusives for us? Um, no, not yet. I, I honestly I honestly don't know. This, this coronavirus may dictate a few things, maybe. Um, we'll see what happens the rest of the season. But, um, like, I, I can't go on forever. Um, but I, I'm, whilst I'm still enjoying it, and as long as I'm enjoying it and still performing, which is the most important thing, then, then you know, I, I'm still going to referee. So... Um, I, I honestly don't know at the moment. Um, w- when we sought out what's happening at the end of the season um, on the international, international stage and domestically as well, I, I'll probably make my mind up there. But um, there's a good chance this could be my last season, but I, I'm not 100% sure yet, so we'll see how it goes. And what was Hooky like to referee? He was good, actually. He was quite quiet. Um, <laughs> Who wasn't uh, quiet if, on the well, If you compare him to, to, to Bigger, for example, the total... <laughs> I'm sure bigger haunts me everywhere I go, I'm telling you. I think Dan is listening. I do... um, Dear, dear, dear. I do quite quite jumpy, actually. I I jump quite easily when something really happens. Um, Dan Bigger. 
Yeah, no, so like that. Bigger, <laughs> bigger plays with that with that passion on the field. No, no, Hooky, Hooky was was great to referee. Sometimes you know if you penalise him, or uh, I remember refereeing a game up in the, in the Dragons, and you know, all, Ospreys had all their, their their big guns there, like you know them, and they were the odds-on favourite. And typical Dragons dug in and they grounded out a win. And uh, I remember blowing the final whistle, and uh, and Hooky just just shakes his head like this. You know? <laughs> Shakes his head and walks past me like this, um, but no, he was he, he was good to referee. Actually, he was great. Like most of them are, to be honest. And just finally, I mean, we've seen you. We talked about your career. Just, just briefly, I mean, we'll, we'll touch on in the panel. What has rugby given you, Nigel, over the years? Um, Monday. <laughs> <who's that>? Monday. <laughs> Uh, not enough. No, it's, it's look. It's, it's it's given. It's given me everything really. From when I started refereeing at at 16 years of age, you know, and um, like I, I, I owe more to rugby than rugby will ever ever owe to me. Um, you know, so from dark times in, in in my life, rugby pretty much kept me going, and um, and that's why if I do finish refereeing uh, this season at the professional end of the game, I'll still continue for another season in the community game, uh, putting back in something that I've been very fortunate to to get so much out of. So yeah, to me. You know, rugby has, has has given given me pretty much everything, really, and uh, I owe a huge amount of gratitude to, to to the sport, and but more importantly, to the people in the sport. Thank you, that's great. Well, Lily, um, so yeah, what's what's your names first of all? I'm Janine. Mark. <laughs> Seem a little bit preoccupied, Mark. Yeah, yeah, try and do this quiz. It's not easy. <laughs> You can blame Simon Thomas for that. That's that's his creation. Yeah, I hope he's got the answers at the end. That's all. You got the answers, Si? What's that? You got the answers to the quiz? Well, I hope so. Otherwise, we're in trouble, aren't we? Yeah, it's all up here. <laughs> he's forgotten half the faces. Um, looking forward to tonight. Then is your first first time seeing Nigel and, and Hooky live here, or no? We actually had, Nigel did a dinner about two three years ago. Did a gentleman's evening and fair play. He was well received that night. So hopefully. He's on form tonight. And invited him back as well. Yeah, we invited him back, so he's passed the test. And we actually got one of his jerseys framed downstairs, so he's a good guest to kill Vanith. Oh, brilliant, I suppose, you know, the, the point of the night tonight is, is raising money for, for the, sort of the, the clubs affected by floods. Obviously, Kilvanith wasn't affected yeah. per se, but I suppose it still hits Valley's rugby hard, doesn't it? Yeah, well, both both my kids play for Ponty Minion Juniors, and obviously with the Taffel facility being hit, you know, it's just £10,000 worth of damage down there, so it's a good cause, and, you know, hopefully a lot of clubs that have been affected will get back on their feet quickly. Who are you more excited to see tonight, Nige or, or Hooky? Oh, it's got to be Nige. I'm a Nige fan. Um, so it was Mark's birthday Monday and I bought him a Nigel Grog. So hopefully uh, Nigel will sign that for me later. But um, yeah, we, Nige is a big fan. We're a big uh, fan club in our house. Our boys love Nige. They want to be players or referees? Um, players at the moment, yeah. I, I referee kids and uh, I think I puts them off enough. They see me get the abuse, so once they see the abuse, they don't want to know. Oh, well, hopefully he'll sign your grog and hopefully you enjoy your night and hopefully you get a few more of these uh, these answers correct. I don't I don't believe Simon knows the answers. I don't think he does. But we'll just make any names up to him. I might help you with a couple in a minute when I'm off air. Okay. I've got James Huckier in the obviously uh, 81 caps for Wales. Uh, three Rugby World Cups and a Lions Tour in 2009. Ladies and gentlemen, can have a round of applause for James Huck. Uh, James, obviously, as we've touched on, uh, the reason we're here tonight is uh, because we're trying to raise a bit of money for clubs that were affected uh, by the flood in a few weeks back. Um, 
everybody in this room has got an affiliation with mm. an amateur rugby club. Can you just share with us your first rugby club uh, and what that gave you in your career? Yeah, well, I started in uh, in Abraham Quinns in Batalbot when I grew up. Um, played there until I was under 12s. Um, and they, they disbanded. I played then for Abraham Juniors, which was stone's throw away from there. Um, and played for British Steel for a couple of years as well, which, which is now known as uh, Tata Steel. But I think Ekwin, what Nigel said, you know, the the, the lower league rugby clubs uh, are everything, and, and without them, you know, we we need them. And I grew up playing for for lower league rugby clubs, experienced uh, things that are different to, to academies. You know, there's a lot of boys now just come straight into academies and don't experience that sort of rugby club culture. You know, whether it's just coming in the bar, having a couple of pints after, and, and sticking together and I think it's uh, yes, it's completely different. So without you know the rugby clubs, the lower league clubs, you know, um, you know, we would suffer a little bit. I think. So I, I deal a lot with with, with your mate Mike Phillips. Um, <laughs> as you touched on there, you know, a lot of the players now, and I, I think you might echo these sentiments as well. Don't don't experience what you've just talked about. They're straight into an academy. Yeah. Um, li- little bit of a you know a shielded environment. They don't get to enjoy youth rugby as such. Don't get to enjoy senior <clears throat> rugby at amateur level. What what do you think that experience gave you? when you were picked up by professional teams? Oh, I don't know. I think it's just... It is different. The game's changed and it's more professional now, so you've got to accept that a little bit. But just like I say, after the game, you know, um, you know, you go in the bar and now a lot of the boys who come into academies, you know, they, they, they haven't got a song to sing on the bus. Like, you know, they... they, they it's, 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 it sounds funny. It's... Uh, well, they they read in reading the words off their phone and things like that. And, you know, it's, it's nothing to do with rugby, but uh, you know, it's, uh, I suppose that's a culture we li- we lived in back in the day. And uh, yeah, like I say, it has changed a little bit now. But you know, you've got to move on with the times, I suppose. But it's still it's still you know a place in the game for, for that, like you know. Yeah, we we've touched on or Nigel just touched on the, the the coronavirus going around the place. We're all told to wash our hands at the moment. Just give us an insight into what it's like in a professional environment. You've been in training today. What what are they saying to you there? Are you just doing the same as everyone else? Exactly the same. I think everyone doesn't really know what's happening. It's changing. I will he really and just just singing happy birthday and wash my hands. That's about it, really. And, uh, <laughs> the, but no, we, we trained today with the Ospreys. We're supposed to train tomorrow morning, um, but that's, that's been cancelled. But we've had our schedule for, for next week, so as it goes, that'll still go ahead, unless it changes, obviously. Absolutely. All right, let's touch on uh, your career a little bit then, James. As I touched on, 81 caps at the start, Lions Tour in 2009. Mm. You moved around a lot when you were playing for Wales. You played for some fly half, bit of centre. You could play anywhere across the back line, it seemed, at times. Do you feel like you, you might have had a bit more caps if they'd just given you one position and let you stick to it? The amount of times we've been asked that question, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's regular and things like this, but I, th- I think maybe I wouldn't have had as many if uh, if I only played in one position. It's, it's hard to tell, and uh, you, you, I suppose I'll never know, but um, you know, I, I, it, it was tough because I always wanted to play outside half and that's why I came through with Neath and felt I played my best rugby but you know it was tough when I could play play 12 and for example I, I always go back to the 2011 Six Nations where I started one international outside half started one at centre and started one at 15 and I, you know I think that was probably the story of my, of my career and when players I think Jonathan Davis went down the centre after I played well at 10 against Scotland so I remember Rob Audley coming up to me and saying he actually sort of apologised and said you know sorry to have to do this but you know we want to play you with 13 you're the next best option so you're going to 13 this week and Stephen Jones is coming back in a 10 so what, what do you say it's, it's difficult you know and you're never going to turn that down 
and at times it was frustrating and you know perhaps I didn't get selected as much as I wanted to but that's the way it goes and I can't complain. Uh, as we touched on you obviously played at a couple of World Cups as well, played on the Lions Tour, been part of some very successful Wales teams throughout your career. When do you think though personally you were playing your best rugby? Uh, I think probably 2009 when I went on the Lions. Mm. I think um, I remember actually what, when I got selected, I was out for my wife's 21st birthday and um, my phone sitting down like, like we are now, my phone was ringing in my pocket and just thought I'd leave it, you know, obviously wasn't expecting it and a call at that time. Um, so it kept ringing, rung again, rung again. I thought I'd better have a look at this now and no number. So I went to the side and, and it was Ian McGeechan and I know he wasn't ringing to, to wish my wife happy, happy birthday, like, you know, so... <laughs> Uh, he just said, he just said that, uh, you know, I, I would like to come on, on a British Lions tour and obviously, as you probably all know, watching the DVDs of Ian McGeechan, he's a, a legend of the game, his speeches and stuff, so just to hear his voice on the other side of the phone was was enough in itself, but, you know, to go on a Lions tour and be coached by him was, was incredible and obviously one of my highlights. Obviously, that tour um, didn't quite go the way that everybody here would have hoped, but it, it will be remembered for a very long time as an incredible test series and an incredible tour mm. in general. You know, what was it like to be part of that group of players with with such players like Paul O'Connor and people like that? Yeah, he was unbelievable. Obviously, he, he skipped that tour. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of world class players on on that trip, and um, probably Alan Wynne Jones will probably learned hell of a lot of of him. But you had. Brian Driscoll, obviously Roland Nagaros. I remember just one of the best sort of at giving team team talks and speaking in front of a team. So obviously I learned a lot myself as well. And yeah, it was unfortunate that we couldn't win the Test series, but um, yeah, the boys put in a good, pretty good shift. And the South Africans are, are rugby mad, as you all know. And it was an intense old tour, but yeah, a great tour at the same time. And uh, a little bit like Simon, I've done a bit of my research as well. Um, speaking of Alan Wynne Jones, you actually made your Wales debut in the same game that he made his Wales debut. Now, this weekend he was supposed to equal Richie McCaw's yeah. world record of 148 test caps. What is he like? You know, you've played with him at the Ospreys as well, you've been in many Wales squads with him over the years. What is it like being in camp with somebody like him? I don't know. It's He's he's intense in a, in a good way because because he's a winner and I think on a Monday morning after a win or after a loss he comes in he's on our training pitch and he's exactly the same because he knows he wants to be better the following week and you know it's interesting when he's he was away the, obviously the last World Cup in Japan with a lot of young academy boys and you know they they quite sort of chirpy when the internationals are away and then you know Alan Wynne Jones comes back in for his first session and they sort of back in the box like you know cause, <laughs> but that's that's the sort of uh, authority he's got and you know he's obviously he's got that many caps because of the way he is and the player he is and, and just before I finish uh, my section with you you know we've talked about everything that's going on at the moment with the uncertainty and things obviously you've you've announced that this is going to be your last season playing is, is that a little bit difficult knowing you know <laughs> when, when you may be playing in September or August October it might not be over yeah, exactly yet. I suppose similar to Nigel I might have played my last game so who knows I don't know but uh, hopefully there's a couple of games left for me before the end of the season but yeah, I've, I've had a you know, really enjoyable career and you know, it's the right time for me to finish so you know, no qualms about that like you know all right, ladies and gents, that's the end of our section. You join me in thanking James Hook. So I guess now it's time for the main part of the night, the Q&A with myself, Simon, Nige and James. Just a word of warning. Obviously, this was a Q&A with questions coming from the audience. But for the purposes of the podcast and audio quality, we've had to sort of cut out 
all of those questions, so I will repeat them, but uh, if there's any sort of jumps in the audio or, or moments that sound jarring, that's the reason why. So yeah, basically, as Paul said, if, if you do your job and ask questions, my job tonight is going to be pretty simple. Um, now, the word legend is thrown around a lot in Welsh rugby. Oh, thank you. So I'm not going to use it tonight. So let's start with the, the pressing question. Nige, you've been here once before. Why do you think you're allowed back? Because <laughs> I give him a jersey and it's up in the other <laughs> That's a good answer. Very good answer. Um, I suppose since me and Simon Asati were both journalists for our sins, you might as well ask uh, James and Nige, how have you found dealing with journos, oh God. our ilk, o- over over your careers? Would you start? To be fair, boys, you've been, been pretty good for, for the majority of uh, my career. Not all of it, but I think that's it. <laughs> Part and parcel of, of being a professional sportsman and obviously a referee as well. You take a rough for the smooth, so you know you enjoy obviously the the hype and the good things that get written about you. So I suppose you have to take on the chin when not so good things get written about you. That was never me or Simon, was it? Yeah. What about you, Nigel? Uh, <laughs> Be honest, now. No, it's, 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 I think Hook is quite right. You know, when you, you want to read the things when they say good things about you, you've got to prepare to read the things when they say not so good things about you. When a referee, it, it comes part of the territory. Really, you could you couldn't do the refereeing job if you if you couldn't you know deal with the yeah. with, with the hassle and the stick and stuff that that, that comes with it. So um, no, you know, I, I, in all fairness. Um, you know, I think you've um, you've done a pretty decent job over the years. I think you know what, what I believe that you've done, Simon in particular, because you know I read a lot of the stuff that you write. Um, you know, is you're pretty honest in what you're doing. You know, people may not agree with your opinion or your view. That's fine, but what you're doing is you know is writing it as it is um, and writing it genuinely and honestly. And I think that's that's what's important. I think I think when people lose respect when people start writing things that are not said or things that are not true or, or you know some journalists will just put things out there just to get a bit of, of reaction and not meaning what they say. You know, and I, I think once you get that reputation, that's when I think then people lose a bit of respect. You know, so um, no, I think we keep. Keep up, keep up the good work, I'd say. Yeah, I think my, my taking has always been that people might not see this, but it is genuinely true that my job is more enjoyable and better when Wales are doing well and the Welsh regions and the Welsh clubs are doing well and there's success to talk about because, you know, in our business, nothing sort of gets people reading material more than success. So, you know... I'm not just a fan, but I am a fan as well, and I think that goes for, for all of us who, you know, that rugby's, like Nigel talked about what rugby's given to you, rugby's given me a huge amount, it's given me a living for 30 years, and I love the game as much as ever, and um, it's a privilege to um, cover it, and a privilege to come to places like this. I suppose following quite nicely to that, obviously, all of us have been in an era where social media's become more prevalent, it's it sort of creeped into, into our careers. It's one thing having journalists writing something about you. It's another thing about having Joe Bloggs putting something on Twitter. How, how have you dealt with that? Block. Block. Very <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> simple. Um, I, I know, I, you know, spoken to a few players about this, and um, some of them find it very difficult, particularly when, um, you know, wheels go through a rough patch and, you, you know, the, what the Welsh public is so passionate, but then they can... They can be your best supporters. They can be your, you know, your your biggest pain as well when things don't 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 go well. And and some, if as I said earlier, if you're a referee, you you have to be able to deal with that. So when I get sort of stick and stuff on on social media, it doesn't make it 
doesn't make it nice. You know, it still hurts. But but because you're a referee, you're able to deal with it because you couldn't do this job otherwise. Um, but some of the players tell me they find it difficult when they have those negative comments because they're not used to it. You know, you're usually sort of supported and the nation loves you as a referee. You know, they like you one week, they, they hate you the next week. So it's, it's part of the parcel of the job as, as, as a referee. So you're able to deal with it. It doesn't make it any nicer, mm. but you're able to, to deal with it. And um, I always like to... Um, you know, I always like to get a get the last word in if somebody says something, and then I say something. I say something back, and then I block them, and I can just picture them then the other side of the computer. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but I, my my motto is: if you can't if you can't say something nice, then don't say nothing at all. You know, unless you're yeah. going to be something constructive, really. Yeah. Uh, have you discovered the block button yet? But okay. Yeah, a couple of times, I think. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't scoop. I went on Twitter probably about, about a year and a half, or two years even, after a lot of the boys, and I suppose curiosity got the better of me. And, but as well, like Nigel said, as a player, after some internationals, you'd, you'd come off a pitch sometimes thinking you had a, had a great game. And you, you look at Twitter and you think, oh, flipping heck, it's such a great game. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, again, it's, just, it's the same if, if you go on you know, social media, you've got to be prepared for, for things like that. And some, some things, I think that's what's frustrating is when things are not. I said, which which are not true, and it's quite funny actually. There's a guy um, who does a podcast, and he, he abused me not so long ago on 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 Twitter after an Osprey's game, and it, I was completely made up. So I thought I'd you know just reply to him with with the facts and just basically you know put him straight. And uh, again, behind the computer screen is quite easy. But I actually bumped into him in the Pro 14 launch. It was literally about two weeks after, and he's, he's apologetic. And I just thought, you know, just, that that just sums it up. Like you know, behind a computer screen, you can be one thing, and in real life, you're completely different. So I don't know. You just got to take it with a pinch of salt. Otherwise, just stay away from it, I suppose. And I, I did apologise for that. In fairness, <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> um, I think we got a question from John Dole. His legs seem to stop working. He's found a seat. Oh. Uh, before before you answer that, just for the purpose of the podcast i will have to repeat questions so it's not my hearing it's just for the purpose of recording so yeah question from the floor who's the worst english player you've refereed well, hang on now i'm gonna have to give you an answer for the podcast and then give you the real answer <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so which, bitch, which bitch is gonna go out now which, which bitch? Um, <laughs> You can use uh, this bit. Um, no, you can use this bit. Uh, Austin Ely, because I remember refing Dragons against um, Leicester Tigers in the EDF Cup in Rodney Parade. And, and I've got to say, Rodney Parade, I, I believe, is, is still a true rugby ground, you know? Yeah. Parkas Gales is, is great when it's full, but it hasn't quite got the Stradi Park feeling. And the Liberty Stadium in Swansea, it, it, it feels like a soccer stadium. It, you know, unless you get the 22,000 in there, it's lacking that rugby feeling. And I, I don't know, there's something about the Arms Park with a 4G pitch since they come back from the City Stadium. Something just quite not right there as well, you know, unless they get it full on a big night, then it's different. But but Rodney Parade, you know, small ground, when it's packed to the full, is a true intimidating place to go. So I was in my first game live on telly, on Scrum 5 on a Friday night, Newport Gwent Dragons against Leicester Tigers. You had Martin Castan Giovanni, Martin Johnson, second row, Martin Corey, eight, Healy, Scrum half, Tulagi on the wing, Jordan Murphy, full back. And we're about 20 minutes into the game now, and, and Austin Healy's got on my bloody nerves. <laughs> He's not happy now. There's a Welsh referee is refereeing the Welsh team against the English team. So anyway, I blow up now. Knock on Leicester. No advantage. Scrum to the Dragons. 
And sometimes when you blow up for a scrum, if there's an injury, you stop the game, you go and check the injury. Michael Owen is playing second row the Dragons. I go, you're right, Mike. Uh, dead leg, Nigel. Won't be long now. So I go back now to restart the scrum and I have the blank moment where I've forgotten now whose ball it was. So I'm thinking to myself, bloody my first game live on telly now and I've forgotten who's put in it is. And I go, oh yeah, Leicester knocked on, so Dragons put in. And in the meantime, Austin Ely could see this blank expression on my face and he goes, uh, hey ref, whose ball is it? So I said, uh, it's ours. <laughs> 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 and ever since then we haven't really got on very well <laughs> and you see when you used to referee years ago t- times have changed now you know we live in a time where political correctness has gone mad you know people look for a reason to get offended you've got to watch what you say these days but when you used to referee years ago if a player is to mess about in the field you call him over and you tell him hey you fuck about again you're gone well, you can't do that now. You, you're wired up live. Are <laughs> you live now? Well, yeah. well you, you could do, but it'd be your last game. <laughs> I'm looking forward to my last game. There's going to be a few having it. So at the end of the game now, Austin really goes to shake my hand, and he knows now, hugely talented player. Hugely talented player. And very good at what he does now as a pundit as well. And he goes to shake my hand and he goes, Nigel, can I ask you a question? Knowing that anything I'm going to say back, everybody's going to hear. I said, of course you can ask him. What is it? He said, "Um, why have you taken an instant dislike to me? I said, it saves time. (laughs) 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 So he he was the most difficult player. And I only refereed him a couple of times because he was coming towards the end of his career when I was, you know, starting to climb the ladder to to, to that level. Do you wish you refereed him more? (laughs) He probably wishes I hadn't. uh, (laughs) What was he like to play against, James? Not that old. (laughs) (laughs) I never played against him. Never played played against him. No. no. Who was the one that you always found most tricky to play against? English player. Well, yeah, in terms of maybe the chops in on the pitch. I don't know. Um, In terms of chops in, but Tuolangi was obviously a tough, tough opponent. But like Nigel said, you know that sort of ribbon and grilling on the pitch has, has gone. Obviously, you've got the characters like like Marler and mm. probably Haskell, those boys. But there's not a lot of those characters left no. left on the pitch now. But uh, yeah, no one really springs to mind. Oh, I believe John Dole has uh, found another table to uh, leech off. Well, I'm on now. I hope you're better at asking questions than you were answering the last ones. <laughs> so uh, again, I, I got to repeat it. Who's the most? Who's the one player you enjoyed giving a red card to most? Um, Oh, I, don't know, I don't know. I think when you give a red card, it's, it's not something you enjoy. It's, it's something you, you know, you, you have to do really. So, um, look, I, I honestly, you know, I, I don't say I couldn't say that I've enjoyed giving a red card. Um, I probably haven't given that that many to to, to be honest with you. Um, um, Most deserve it. <laughs> oh, but oh, they all deserved it. <laughs> 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 I, I tell you, I didn't give him a card, but this is, this is one of the funniest moments. I remember refing a game up in Gilvach Goch <laughs> years and years ago. I was only about 21, 22 years of age. One of my first seasons of the WI list up in Gilvach Goch. And in about oh, five minutes into the second half now, good big crowd there in, around, around the field in Gilvach Goch. And then behind the field, you've got a little bank that goes up, haven't you? So I'm refing the game there now, and the, and the flanker playing for Gilvach Goch, covered into twos. 
hair shaved, really looked tough, not like, you know. He goes to me, uh, do me a favor, ref. Let me know when there's five minutes left. I thought, right, okay. I thought, what's, okay, what's he going to do when there's five <laughs> minutes left? I thought, now he's going to... He's either going to deck somebody or deck me now. And if he gets sent off <laughs> with five minutes to go, it's not going to make much difference to the game. I say, all right, okay. Anyway, about 20 minutes later, he goes, don't forget now. Five minutes to go, let me know. Don't forget. I said, right, I won't forget. And then we come there. St- game stops naturally. And it's about six minutes to go. And I said, right, I said, six minutes to go. He said, oh, thanks very much, ref. He said, thanks for the game. Shook my hands and legged it off the field. And everybody's like, where the hell is he going? And all of a sudden, there's about seven policemen in the crowd, all chasing after him. <laughs> so they'd obviously come there to, to question him or arrest him for something, and he knew they were there, and he just legged, and as he run, do you know one of the old Benny Hill films? He got, <laughs> he's running up the, the hill now. You've got about seven or eight policemen, and I remember one policeman is a bit overweight, and they had the old helmet then. And he was running up the hill. The helmet falls off behind him, and then halfway up the hill, man, the policeman just stops and you know hands on his knees is bollocks and then the player goes over the hill never to be seen again and I, I still don't know what, what happened but you know that, that to me was one of the, one of the funniest moments I was you know I, I honestly thought he was going to deck somebody and, but, but, but he didn't well it sounds like he already had <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, James have you ever experienced anything like that obviously you were playing for Neath when you got capped for Wales yeah I think actually you give me a Yellow card in the corner of Malta Cup final against Ponte. We're chatting about actually, but uh, I, I wasn't going for decking anyone. Anyway, I I yeah, can I apologise now, James? <laughs> I should have never been a yellow card. I should have been red. It's like therapy, isn't it? It's, 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 we're going to get some yeah. things out tonight. <laughs> uh, but, Again, you don't, you don't, you don't see any punches thrown now, do you? In, no. in the modern game, well, apart from uh, <laughs> uh-huh. that's, that's not something uh, to be disappointed last about. Last week, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you see, see a lot of uh, scuffles and and handbags there yeah, and and groping, but uh, that's about it. Like you know, but, uh, it's amazing. Do you know when you say oh, you don't see punches anywhere? Everybody goes, oh, you know, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> they want to see the punches. How did you find the differences between the English league and the the Pro 14? I think well, the English league obviously you got the the relegation, so you know every game is is a huge game, and I think the the main thing for me that I, that I found in in England compared to the Pro 14, and Nigel touched on it a little bit, is the crowds. So every single place you go to in in England, it's a it's a packed house. Obviously, I played for Gloucester, and no, no matter if, if it's a Premiership game or the the A League play on a Monday, you get sort of seven eight thousand turning up to to, to an A League game. Um, and that's probably more than what we'd have in, in an Ospreys game, you know, for for that league. So I think that's as a player, you know, and Nigel probably say the same as a referee. You, the bigger the crowd and the more atmosphere, you sort of you scare yourself up for it. But mm. in terms of the rugby, you know, it's, it's, it's still the same game. There's no difference there. But uh, I think the players definitely react better to obviously bigger crowds, and that's the only the, the biggest difference for me as a player. I suppose with you, Nigel, as well, you, you, you sort of referee a lot of cross hemisphere as well, don't you? You've done a lot of. Rugby championship games. Bit of snicker in the back. I don't know where John Doll's gone. Um, <laughs> you keep keep them hands to yourself. Somebody, somebody. <laughs> yeah, you, you obviously refereed a lot of sort of cross hemisphere. How do you find the difference then when you you off to sort of South Africa, New Zealand, Australia? It's um very strange when you're refereeing in the in the rugby championship because you don't tend to have the away support there. 
You know, I, I remember refing um, South Africa against against New Zealand in Alice Park in um, 2013, which, which many people say was is the best game of rugby they've ever seen. And there were 67,000 packed into Alice Park. There were probably only about 20 away support from New Zealand there, so the atmosphere was electric. But it was one-sided. You know, I, I refereed New Zealand some like 25 times. And all those 25 times, that's the only time ever I've heard the hacker drowned out when South African supporters were saying, ole, 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 South Africa. So, so the atmosphere is very different. You know, if, if the game was, was on tomorrow in Cardiff, they, you know, there'd be 10, 12, 14,000 Scottish supporters in the stadium. So it adds to the atmosphere of the occasion. And um, so it, it's very different in, in one sense. And um, if you go to Twickenham, Twickenham is, is, is always full. No matter what game is played in Twickenham, the atmosphere is, is it's nice there. You know, you you do. You know, if if Wales score a try in Twickenham, majority of the English supporters would would clap. You know, so you know, great try. You imagine uh, the Welsh supporters clapping if England <laughs> scored a try. So it's, it's it's very very different, really. And um, like, and that I think that is the the shame. And when, when you see the the derbies, the Welsh derbies over Christmas, and you have the packed houses, you know, it, it lifts the players up, it lifts the occasion up, and it lifts the referee up. And and that's a shame, really. I know, and I probably in the Pro 14 when you got. You know, so many different countries competing. You haven't got the way you support there. You know, when when Leicester go to play in Gloucester, you know, they'll take three, four, five thousand. You know, it adds to the occasion. And unfortunately, you don't have that in the Pro 14 because the away support doesn't 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 travel. Even the Munster supporters don't travel like they they used to before, and which is a shame really because when you have the the atmosphere, it does add to the occasion definitely. Aside from the Principality Stadium, Millennium Stadium is old. Which is the ground you've enjoyed refereeing at most in your career? Would you say? Um, I wouldn't say it's so much the ground, it's actually the occasion. Because yeah. I did Scotland, the only time I'd done the Calcutta Cup, which was three years ago in, or two years ago in, in or two years ago in, in Murrayfield. You know, the atmosphere was electric yeah. that day, you know. So Murrayfield was special that day. Um, you know, I, I did my first Six Nations match in Twickenham. I did my World Cup final in, in Twickenham. So it was special, the occasion. I've, I've done, um, you know, New Zealand, Australia in in Eden Park, um, South Africa against New Zealand in Soccer City in Soweto, South Africa. You know, the, the atmosphere in, in Paris this year for the um, Le Crunch game, France-England, the opening weekend of the Six Nations, it was it was electric. Yeah. So the, the occasion and the game adds to the stadium, really. So so it's, it's the game, the occasion that makes the stadium rather than the stadium itself. So it, it all depends on the fixtures, really, and the occasion. Hmm. I suppose the same question for you, for you, Lucky. What's the sort of occasion or, or stadium you've enjoyed? Yeah, I, th- I think if my favourite stadium is is uh, Paris, just because of the way it's it's sort of uh, built and like you know after the Millennium Stadium, that is for atmosphere and things. But um, I think as as a club club ground, I, I love playing in Perpignan. Um, and again, it's probably similar to what Nigel was on about. It's, it's that atmosphere that the supporters, I think it was 14,000, 15,000 the capacity of that stadium. It's like a sort of, I don't know if any of you have been there or, or seen on TV, it's like a sort of yeah. a bullring type of arena. And, and the fans are bonkers. And <laughs> I, I, just, I always remember like just um, Nicola Mass, our prop, was leaving Perpignan at the end of the season. And obviously nobody wanted him to go because he was a quality player. But we had fans, hundreds of fans turning up on Monday with with banners saying you know calling him a traitor and things and he served the club for so long and he didn't want to go the club you know just uh, you know had to let him go for for various reasons and but that's that's the passion of the fans and they they make the atmosphere and obviously the stadium and the style of it helps but uh, it is supporters. 
Have been called a traitor, so? No, I mean, I, I've been to Perpignan. Stade Immigration. Incredible atmosphere. Yeah. I'd say that one and um, Clermont Ferrand. Yeah. That yeah. is an incredible place to watch yeah. rugby. I mean, the crowd up there. And I was, I was at um, the third Ponty Breve game in 1997, the rematch. And I'll never forget that. Um, they were throwing bed, bread rolls us in the press box. You know, it was just an extraordinary occasion. And yeah, I think those, those trips in France, I, I always enjoyed covering European games in France. S- some would say about time. Yeah, probably. Um, speaking of which, we got a question from John Dolly's perched nicely there. So that was about Owen Farrell and, and whether he's been carded enough for, 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 for what he's done. <laughs> um, the floor is yours. <laughs> <laughs> you want the official version now, or are we want the unofficial? Um, no, look, they, 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 no, they, they will have looked at that. What they, what you probably will find is, is, is on some instances that they will decide that that warrants a penalty or it warrants a yellow card, which means then he'll have a, a sighting commissioner's warning. So he's probably had a couple of them. You know, he's had a sighting commissioner warning saying, well, look, that should have been a yellow, um, same as in the Pro 14. If a player, um, you know, should be having um, a yellow card, then, you know, he gets a sighting commissioner warning saying, well, you should have had a yellow card. And if that tops up to three, then you, then you get a ban. So they would have looked at those incidents and decided, you know, whether it warrants a red or Riello, um, and uh, I, I've had a, a good chat with, with Owen a couple of times before before games, you know, and, and discussing these. And he says, "Well, how am I supposed to tackle?" I said, "Well, not, not like that, you know. You need you need <laughs> you need to sort of wrap the arms." And he was saying, "Well, I'm I'm trying to you know get down to get the power in to dislodge the ball and stuff like." That. I say, "Yeah, I appreciate what you're trying to do, but if if you get it wrong, you're going to be in trouble. So you need to your shoulder hits, and as your shoulder hits." Your arms wrap then instantly after. So the, what the referees will, will look at, so if you're going to make a tackle and your arm is down to your side, pointing down or backwards, then there's no way you're making a legal tackle. And if you hit with this shoulder first and this arm is back like this, then that's an illegal tackle. If you hit with the shoulder but your arm is here and as you hit, it wraps, then you're in the process of making a legal tackle. So that would be the trigger of the referees of if this arm is, is down here, and then wraps too late afterwards. That's how they look at So they will have looked at that and decided, well, yeah, this could have been a yellow, which was gi- wasn't given. Um, but obviously, what they have looked at, they've obviously decided that those tackles did not warrant a red, or otherwise he would have been cited. That's the process they go through. So that's the official answer. <laughs> What's the unofficial answer? <laughs> the same as the official answer. <laughs> He's from a rugby league background as well, or his father isn't he? Yeah, so yeah, and yeah. they tackle like that a lot, don't yeah. they? So they get away with it in rugby league, don't they? I was going to ask you, James. I mean, there's been such a focus on high tackles. We've all seen the framework that's come in. Have you seen during your career that people have had to change the mindset in terms of the height of the tackle? Is it changing? Yeah, d- definitely. Yeah, and I think it is tough because you look at that Tulangi tackle, obviously, which you probably rightly got red carded for, but it's difficult when someone's going for the corner there. Like, how else are you supposed to tackle in the way? No, you've got to try and get yourself in, in front and in a position where you're not using your shoulder, but it's, it's difficult. And I think players, especially who have been around for a lot longer, who are used to tackling one way, have got to try and adapt it. But obviously, it's, it's being changed for the right reasons. So yeah. you've got to try and try your best to, you know, to, to bite the rules. So a question there from the floor for both of you, James and Nigel. How do you deal, or how do you prepare, rather, uh, for matches? Sorry, no, I, I, no not, not really, to be honest. Obviously, if there's a massive game coming up, then the build-up to the week, same as a player would, you know, you, you may have a game which, you know, you've still got to prepare. 
but do your best in that game because for those players on the field that game is important to them and you need to respect that and, and, and put your performance in so you prepare pretty similar really because you have to prepare to be best for the game but you know there are some games obviously you know that but you really do you know get up for and you know big game a, a semi-final or the world cup there's a bit more hype to it so it adds to your preparation your adrenaline for it but no i, I prep i prepare the same really uh, a lot of referees do a lot of analysis on teams and players i don't really do that i do a little bit not much because i i think it's important you referee what's in front of you if you go in with preconceived ideas you're going to get things wrong um and you may land up refing a player or a side different to the others because you've got preconceived ideas. So I sort of go in with an open mind, really. Um, Training-wise, you know, I'll do two running sessions a week uh, and, and some gym sessions as well. Obviously, I'm, I'm getting older now, so, you know, the less I train, a better quality rather than, than, than more. You know, I, I can't... I can't run now on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and then ref on a Friday. So I'll run on a Monday, day off, or do upper body on a Tuesday, run on a, a Wednesday, rest Thursday, game Friday or, or Saturday. So you prepare a, a bit more smartly, really. So to, And that's that's the way I prepare. But I'm quite relaxed in a game, really. I, I don't over-prepare. I just just you know, just, just do what I need to do to make sure that I, I'm able to give my, my, my best on, on the day. And everybody has a different ways of, of preparing for a game. I always wear my lucky boxers, which my cousins buy me every Christmas. It's, um, <laughs> it's Superman this year. Um, um, and then I always listen to... The, uh, uh, a selection of music on my uh, docking station in the changing rooms um, and then always listen to the same song before I go out in the field which is How Great Thou Art in Welsh or Welsh Him um, or Vauroiti I always listen to that as the last song before before I go out on the field and then when I walk out onto the field same thing every game is the same process and then as you walk out behind the two teams as I walk out in the field and cross the white of the touch white to the touchline I always tell myself, don't f*** it up. (laughs) (laughs) I I suppose the same question for you, Hooky. I know that you've got a little superstition. Going back to high school, you you ring your grandparents before every game, don't you? Yeah, I just, yeah, I went back back from school. Yeah, they 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 follow me everywhere, and like you know, luckily they they still still alive in the early nineties now, but. I used to ring when I had a school match and just tell them if the game was on, basically, or where the bus was going for, from, so they could they could follow it down. Um, and yeah, done it done it every you know every single game um, up in, up until now. So yeah, that that hasn't changed, and it's the same you know uh, things before game. Um, the pre-match meal is, is disgusting. You know, it's the same <laughs> spaghetti bolognese which which you have to you have to eat. Um, and you just, I think I preferred a game the earlier the better. So in, in Europe, you know, the, the quarter one in the afternoon kickoffs, I used to love those because when you get up, you're really excited and you know you got all this nervous nervous energy. So you just want to get out and play. So when I played in France, obviously with with, with Perpignan, they loved the the quarter nine kickoffs. So waiting around all day. In hotel, I couldn't sleep. A lot of the boys would go to sleep for for a couple of hours. I couldn't, so I'd end up twiddling my thumbs, and I'd be knackered by the time the game started. So, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the earlier the game, the better for me. But no, it was all the same, and it always has been. How did you manage sort of the, the pre-match nerves? You know, I can never really eat before games. That's why I drink before games instead. <laughs> what are you like? 
like, quite quite relaxed. Like I think you, you have got nerves and and old butterflies, but I think you've got to try and keep yourself relaxed because you work yourself up too much, and you know you obviously it does, doesn't help you going into the game. So I think just trust the, the work you've done in the week, and obviously for myself as like a goal kicker, I sort of take confidence in in having a good week's kicking, for example, and and training, and that that takes you into the game. I suppose the same question for you, Nigel. Mm-hmm. How, how do you deal with nerves? I got a question. Do you play rugby, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Front, front, front row. <laughs> what position do you play then? Um, I was a wing turn flanker, which tells you a lot. <laughs> yeah, it does a lot. Um, no, I, I, I don't really get nervous as, a, as in a nervousness of, of worrying about the game. I get a little bit of butterflies of excitement, really. And I, I think that's important, really, you know, that you get a little bit of. Bit of but a bit of butterflies because it you know keeps you focused, keeps you you know ready to, to do your best. Because if you, you know, become sort of too relaxed and you don't have them, you can quite blasé and come overconfident and stuff like that. That's when you're going to come up short. So I get a little bit of, of, of adrenaline, nerve, um, nervousness, of excitement rather than any sort of nervousness of worrying about it. And uh, the days dictated, then as James said, you know about times of the kickoff. You know if it's a one o'clock kickoff, five o'clock, seven o'clock. France is the worst, you know, you're refereeing France and it's nine o'clock in the night, you know, you're sitting down having a few speeches and uh, you're having a start there at uh, half past one in the morning after a <laughs> test match in France sometimes, so uh, the day is dictated and uh, quite a bit uh, around, you know, the time of the kickoff as well. Did you ever have those moments early in your career where maybe you were not so nervous and a bit complacent and that affected decisions? Um... No, I, I, I did find a couple of games. I do my first sort of big European game or your first test match. Then it was a little bit more nervous than, than I usually would be. And um, I made, you know, the, you're not going to referee a game of rugby without making any mistakes. And that's the first thing I tell some of the young referees. If you think you're going to go out to that field and not make a mistake, then forget it. You're going to make a mistake. The better you become, the less mistakes you make. Uh, and I made, and if you make mistakes, there's nothing wrong with that. You learn from them. But the problem is if you do the same mistake again. And um, my biggest mistake was, um, and this was because I went into the game too arrogant and too blasé, because I refereed um, Wasps against Leinster in the quarterfinal of the European Cup back in 2007. It was my first knockout game in Europe. And um, it was a great game of rugby, so it was a nice game to referee. Wasps won like something like 39-20, so you know, the referee just goes with the game. And I came out to the game with a glowing report and stuff, and I just thought, you know, I have to, you know I've, I've made it. And then the following Wednesday, I was refereeing my, my old school, my Sarodva against Askol Goyer in, in, in the Welsh Schools Cup. And I just turned up to referee that game, just, just thinking I was, I'm too good for this game. You know, I've just refereed a quarter final of Europe, Delali was playing or Driscoll was playing, I'm too good for this game and, and I was bloody hopeless and I was hopeless and the players knew it and they said to me as well pretty much you know and I lost control of the game because just every, anything was, was going in the game really and I sent a player off because <clears throat> of my inability to referee the game properly and, and that's the biggest regret I made I was turning up there thinking I was too good at the game and I said to myself after that game there's no way that I am going to disrespect the game again and turn up and think I'm too good for it because for those 30 players on the field that is their World Cup final and they expect you to perform as you were refereeing in the quarterfinal of Europe or in the World Cup final and I've never ever made my mistake again even if I turn up to an under-12s game um, which I still referee sometimes and I get time on a Sunday morning and stuff like that then I was still 
you know, show that game, the players the same respect as I would do if I was refing England, New Zealand. Now you do ref a little bit differently, you know, you, you let little things go, you coach the players a bit more and stuff like that at under 12s and you do in, uh, in a test match, of course you do, but you still show the game the same respect. <laughs> I was wondering, James, in all those caps you won for Wales, who was kind of the most laid-back player before a game? And, and perhaps who was the most pumped up as well, generally? Oh, laid-back. Um, Shane was always quite laid-back. Mm. Like, Mike Phillips always seemed laid-back. You tell everyone how good he was. and how, uh, <laughs> But I think that was just the way he, he dealt, with, dealt with things. But um, I think uh, around that era with the Ospreys, when we did particularly well, we were, we were all quite laid-back. And I think... You, you get like that when when you're winning and you go, yeah. you're doing well. I think you know when when obviously you're not going so well and uh, you know things get a bit tense and people around you get nervous. It makes everyone else a bit nervous. But I think back in back in that Ospreys day, we we were confident and everyone in the team seemed seemed quite laid back. And who spent most time in front of the mirror before the game? It was, it was a battle in those days. <laughs> it was a, yeah, there's a few contenders. Uh. What about what about someone like Neil Jenkins? Because he was notorious as a player, wasn't he? In terms of pre-match nerves did he sort of manage to well keep it up when he was when he was a coach oh he was, he was always nervous he still, he still gets nervous now I think he's he was always sick before games when he played internationals and and there is there is boys now and you know sometimes I you know I feel sick sometimes and before doing this before doing this yeah <laughs> um, and, and after the gum shield doesn't help either that, that makes you feel a bit sick but uh, yeah jinx is really bad but pretty much every single game you hear boys heaving in the toilets there's nothing new there like you know there we go that's one to take away uh, from tonight uh, I believe John Dole has got a question <laughs> what, what was it that's a, a classic two-parter there so first half is for James are the Southern Hemisphere boys that good and the second half for Nige or are they that good at cheating if you were listening, you'd have known. <laughs> <laughs> I know you were going to repeat the question, so I was wondering. Oh, they are, they, are, they are that good. I think going back to the Ospreys days when you had the likes of Justin Marshall, Jerry Collins, Marty Holler, Philo Tietia, these boys were obviously world-class players. They were, they were confident. Um... I think that that fed through through the squad then, and like Philo Tiatia, you know, I remember he he was a, a man mountain for us, and I remember Shane telling a story once when uh, I think it was Shane's testimonial where all Philo's friends came came there and they were asking him, you know, calling him calling him King, you know, King, can I have a drink, all this sort of stuff, and and Shane asked him later on, then, well, why why are they calling you King, Philo? And he said, I can tell told him to, he said. So. <laughs> But they, <laughs> I think it's just the, the confidence, and obviously not just New Zealanders. We had South Africans like Stefan Tablanche in, in the side, and they were successful in their own right. And young boys like myself coming through, watching these boys on TV, to just to be around them was was amazing. And like Justin Marshall, for example, as a, as a young ten to play with with God knows how many caps he had, all black, is was unbelievable. I remember actually the first time rooming with Justin Marshall, I was. I was you know, nervous as hell, just just uh, being in the same room as him. And my first my first night, I um, ended up sleep talking. And uh, <laughs> I'd Justin Marshall the next morning was telling the boys like I'd I'd obviously been sleep talking and found out that I'd asked him to leave the dogs out or something. And I haven't, <laughs> I, I haven't got any f- dogs, so I don't know where I came from. But uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think. But no, they. 
I don't think I don't think they would cheat this or they might might have bent the rules a little bit, but um, they were they were quality. And again, like you say, like, as a young boy coming through to be play with those sort of players was was unbelievable. On to the second part of the question, then, Nigel. Yeah, they they cheat, but they cheat fairly. <laughs> <laughs> no, like I, I think it's a bit. If, if, if you go back to um, you, you go back when, when when Man United were ruling the roost under Ferguson for that sort of decade or so, like you know, and everybody's saying, "Oh, they're getting away with this. They're they're cheating. They're getting away with this from the referees because they were the best." And 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 that happens. New Zealand were the same. When New Zealand were the best for a period of time, um, you know, people saying, "Well, they're getting away with stuff," and, and that's sort of human nature. And when somebody's really at the top of the game, everybody wants to knock them off there. So, no, they, they were just good at what they did. You know, Richie McCaw knew exactly where the line was. He knew that if this referee today is going to let me be a half a yard offside and not penalise me, I'm going to be a half a yard offside. If he's going to penalise me when I'm half a yard offside, then I won't do it again. He was very clever at that. And it's, no, you know, Martin Williams did it nothing much different to Richie mm. McCaw did. Mm. You know, he knew where the line was. He'd pushed the edge as an open side flanker. It's just because of McCaw and New Zealand's success everybody was having a go at them. Now, you know, if, if Wales were having the same period of success as New Zealand were, then everybody's saying, well, Mary Williams is getting away with this as the flanker, and, and that's just human nature, really. So, no, it's no different to any other flanker or player or, or any other teams, really, you know, that they, but they knew, they knew where the, the boundary was, and some teams just don't know. Some players just overstep it and keep on pushing, keep on pushing, and then they're off. Where they would overstep it, Okay, this is a limit. I'm not going to go any further, and that comes down to the individual or or the team then and the ethos of of, of the coaching and stuff in the team. I suppose, sir, you're not in the player or the referee camp, so you can give us the sort of the view in between those two camps. Are they good? Or are they cheaters? I think the biggest thing for me is I'm in the 80s and 90s. You know, covered rugby, started covering, and then we really struggled when we played the teams from the Southern Hemisphere. You remember Pretoria. 96-13 Wales lost and I think the biggest thing for me over the last 10-15 years really is people have pointed that you know under Warren Gatlin's time there weren't that many wins against the South Hemisphere sides but we were consistently competitive the fact we got to two World Cup finals Wales pushed to South Africa the ultimate winners of the tournament so close in Japan I think that's the, the biggest thing that Wales now for a decade or so have been right up there competitive in the world stage and you know it's, it's easy to become complacent and blasé about it you just think back to what it used to be like, you know, in the 80s and 90s when we went through some very difficult times as an international team. And I think that's been a huge plus. And just hopefully now, you know, after the Six Nations and moving on, because there's some tough, tough not Southern Hemisphere games coming up this year. There's supposed to be a tour to New Zealand. We wait to see whether that'll go ahead. And got a brutal autumn international. But that's been a big thing for me. We've, we've been able to hold our own on the international stage. And that's a big plus. See, the glamorous assistant is hiding behind the chairs. That means one thing. He's got a question. So I guess the question was, can you remember an era where rugby was better? Um, well, look, look, there's no doubt now. You know, defences have become a huge part of the game now, and that's down to probably a lot of the rugby league coaching coming in into the game. Uh, and as I said earlier, you've got players now, they're so big, they, they try to run through people rather than trying to run around them. And I think by changing the law of substitutions, that will, will, will help that a bit, I, I think. Um, it remains to be seen if, if that's the case, if it, will, if it will happen. But, you know, you look at them... Um, you look at that try that Wales scored at the beginning of the second half in Twickenham on Saturday. 
that was one of the best tries for a long, long time. If that had happened in the 70s, we'd still be talking about it in 30 years' time. Um, and then if you look at some of Wales's games, you know, when they won the Grand Slam in 2005, for example, the rugby they played that year was absolutely brilliant. And if you look at the success the boys have had since 2005, two semi-finals of the World Cup, Grand Slams, uh, triple crowns, championship wins, um, but nobody's speaking about it like like the seventies still. So, and I, and I don't know the answer to that. But um, look, there are no doubt there are some games of poor quality. There are some games are absolutely brilliant quality as well. So there's probably a mix of both. You know, probably the way the game's been played defensively, size of the players, the coaching. But then you know you look at some teams they play a different style of of, of rugby as well. So, you know, I, I think. Things are different now. The game is different now. But I still think, you know, sometimes we don't appreciate sometimes when we do have great games of rugby, we always tend to look at the negative things. And you quite try to look at some negative things sometimes because some of the games are poor quality. But we've also had some, some brilliant games of, of rugby as well in, in, in the modern era. Um, and, and, and I suppose, you know, a lot of it comes down to the coaching. Yeah, you know, I, I was looking at, uh, I was working for S4C on, on Saturday in Twickenham. And I noticed, um, I think it was one of the Welsh players caught the ball from the kick on the touchline. And he ran straight into two players in front of him. And I thought, well, what, why didn't he pass that ball out? Because the English defence was all over the place because they just kicked back and forth. Why didn't he pass that out? You know, they had, he had players to beat. They had space out there. But why did he run straight in front? So is it down to the player deciding not looking for the vision outside? Is it the coaching saying, if you get the ball here, this is what you do? And I don't know the ins and outs of that, and maybe James can, can answer that better because he was one of the best with the ball, particularly in, in, in open play when the game was, was broken up. And Shane was another one. You, you look at some of the tries that Shane scored for Wales in the last you know, decade when he was playing. They were absolutely brilliant, brilliant. You know, they were as good as some of Gerald Davis's tries. But people don't talk about it like Gerald Davis does. There's something about the Gerald of the 70s, and the 70s were brilliant. But I also think as well that the last 10, 12 years of Welsh rugby, there's some, some brilliant games and stuff as well, I think. Uh, uh, yeah, go on. I mean, how, how did you find it? You were quite a sort of natural player. You came from playing to Neath, to mm. the Ospreys, uh, to, to Wales. How, how did you find the sort of the structure and, and the sort of the growing rugby league influence on, on rugby? Yeah, I suppose I was probably more of, of, of an instinctive player, and especially when I was coming through with, with Neath, coached by Pat Hogan, and um, and it, you know later on that Nigel Davis, Carl Jenkins, they give me that encouragement to go out and basically just play what what I saw in a way, and and it, it's easy to look back, but it, it has changed, and I think. When I first played for Neath in my early days with, with Gareth Jenkins and Nigel Davis, defence coaches were just coming through. But now defence coaches are just as important as, as attack coaches and, and that's just the way it is. And you've got to constantly try and look for ways to try and break down defences, whether that's, that's little kicks over the top, trying to stop their line speed. And you know, it's completely different when I, when I first started. Um, but I still definitely think there's room in the game for people like Shane. You've only got to look at uh, Charles and uh, Colby for South Africa. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable player. And he, he seems to create space even with modern day defences. So, you know, you'll see players coming through through like that every, every so often. But, you know, I, I, I agree. I, I wish there was, there was more of them. But it's definitely down to the defences and the defence coaches because they pay just as much as the attack coaches these days. Talking there about Sean Edwards and Fear Factor, having spoken to a few sort of players who won one or two caps and came into the Welsh camp fairly new, 
they found one of the most intimidating things about Sean Edwards was just him <clears throat> just sort of shadow boxing on his own. No one around. He's just shadow boxing. Did you ever did you ever catch him like punching thin air? Well, yeah, pretty most mornings. Most mornings he would be, and he'd grab grab anyone. Like our sports psychologist, I caught him in the gym with him boxing you know, a couple of times, and he just he, he just loved it, and he's he's this sort of crazy mindset. But I think that's why boys, you know, were fearful of him because you didn't know what you were going to get from one, one minute to the next with him. But he never caught you. No. Right. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, another question from John Dolly, believe. Okay, so best and worst captains. Oh. I think Alwyn Jones is obviously you know one of the obvious ones, but I think Alfie, when I first sort of came through, and he he was he was right up there as well. He, he was a he was a player's captain, so he'd be a, a player who'd and a captain who'd do what's best for the players, not not for himself or or what the coaches would would want you to do. Um, so he always looked looked after the players. So I always been enjoyed sort of captained by Alfie and and Alan Wynn, obviously the more modern day captain now. Is, you know he's, he he does his talking on the pitch and uh, yeah, great leader. Yeah, I think the, the different styles of captains. You got the, the captain who's sort of you know more in in the referee's face or maybe more in his player's face, and then you have the other style of captain like your Warburton's were a bit more. Relaxed and and always just just come to the referee when they really need to and and, and it's up to the captains then to know the actual referee um, you know what best way to to approach him and I've done quite a bit of work with a couple of captains and Welsh captains and Welsh players and stuff as well around how they deal with 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 captain, uh, with, with, with with referees um, like McCall was a very very good captain you know he he put his body on the line um, he challenged you when he thought that his team was getting unfairly punished or if he felt that the opposition were pushing the offside line he he challenged you but also as well when you told him you know you need to speak to your team because if they do that again, somebody's going to go to the bin. And then he would speak to his team. So he was a very good captain in, in that sense. Um, Delalio was um, was another challenging captain. <laughs> I remember doing um, a Munster against Wasps. It was the last round of the um, group stages in the European Cup. If um, whoever won would be going to Gloucester in the quarterfinal. And although Gloucester were a good side back then, this is probably around 2008, maybe. No, oh, sorry, 2007 it was, because Munster went on to win the European <coughs> Cup. Um, 2008, sorry. So Gloucester were a decent side back then, but they didn't quite have the, the belly for it. So if you they came up against a, a very good side, that's when they would lose. And uh, so both of Wasps and Munster fancied the chances of going to Kingsham and beating Gloucester in the quarterfinal. So it was all down in this game. And um, Delalio killed the ball on the 22-meter line, deliberately killed the ball, slowed everything down, I sent him in the bin, and he's walking off the field in Thorman Park, 28,000 packed into Thorman Park, cheering me for sending him off, <laughs> <laughs> booing Delalio, singing the fields of Arthur and Rye, and then they lost the game, something like 22-10. They, they, were, they were well beaten. They could have any complaints, but Delalio had a complaint. <laughs> so on the Sky interview, he goes, ah, yeah, Neferi Nigel Owens shouldn't send me off today. I was going for the ball legally. He got that wrong, uh, you know, and well, that contributed to the loss of the game. And I thought to myself, you, that's not bloody true. So anyway, I thought to myself, well, he was finishing the end of that season. And I thought, well... If I'm going to referee him again, now he's going to have it. <laughs> so there was one game left, the only game I could referee him again, and that was 
EDF semi-final in the Millennium Stadium. Ospreys are playing Saracens. Wasps are playing Leicester. Fixtures come through. Osprey Saracens, Wayne Barnes. Leicester, Wasps, Nigel Owens. I thought, right. <laughs> and I knew exactly what Delali was going to do. I go into the changing rooms before the game and he's in the corner there strapping up. He's captain of Wasps as well. And he comes in and he goes, ah, ah, Nigel, good to see you. And I thought, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, good to see you and before he could say anything else I said oh Lawrence I said good to see you as well by the way what half do you want to go off in <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and just all the players laughed and he sort of came over and said yeah yeah no I, I know apologies about that Nigel yeah just just heat the moment after losing losing the game but he was a very good he was a very good captain as well very 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 challenging for, for a referee and doing his job as uh, as a captain so um, we've been very blessed in Wales to have really good captains you know Warburton was brilliant Alan Jones is brilliant Ryan Jones was a very very good captain as well um, so you know we've had a lot of good good leaders in Wales and, it, and it's hugely important for the success of a team to have a good leader on that field particularly when it comes to, to dealing with referees as well I was going to ask you about your best and worst boss but he's, he's looking right at us so I think I'll leave that question for another <laughs> night um, I think that is it for tonight I'm getting sacked tomorrow um, uh, you're going to sack now I think tomorrow <laughs> Uh, just like if you'd like to join me in thanking James and Nigel uh, for this brilliant last hour. Thank you.